0: Let me pray again really quickly before I I begin our sermon today. Father, thank you so much for this great opportunity, Lord, to come up before your people and and preach, Lord. I pray that you would fill us all, Lord, with your spirit and that you would be glorified, Lord, through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we return to our study in Acts, uh, Paul is still in prison in Caesarea. If you recall, this is Paul's second trial in Caesarea, right? And one, the first one that he had was with a governor named Felix. And now, two years later, he's being tried under a governor named Festus. In both instances, uh, those who accuse Paul, the religious Jews, have failed to make a legitimate case against him. But unfortunately, however, in spite of Paul's innocence, both Roman, Roman governors, Felix and Festus, refused to set paul free and so last week after his trial before festus paul appealed to go before caesar and so festus agreed to send paul to rome in order to get a hearing before him and now uh, we'll pick up uh, the story in verse 13 of acts chapter 25 and read about what happens next this is the word of god now when some days had passed agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus and as they stayed there many days Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying there's a man left prisoner by Felix and when I was at Jerusalem the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him and I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of disputes with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he had wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. "'Tomorrow,' said he, "'you will hear him.'" So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. "'King Agrippa and all who were present with us, "'you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me,' Festus said, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer.'" But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write, my lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges that are against him. Thus ends the word of God, may he add his blessing to it." Walt Disney was a a famous television and movie producer who is well known for creating popular films like Peter Pan, Mickey Mouse, and Cinderella. But he also built some enormous amusement parks that are extremely popular today, like Disneyland and Disney World. When Walt Disney first decided to build Disneyland, however, he drove his friend Arthur Linkletter to the countryside in California in order to offer him the very first opportunity to purchase some of this land for his project. And Walt Disney said to his friend Arthur Linkletter, Look, Art, there's a fortune to be made out here. I'm telling you right now, if you buy up all this property around Disneyland in a year or two, it'll be worth 20 times more than what you paid for it. But unfortunately, at that time, however, Arthur Linkletter thought the idea was crazy and he decided to turn his friend Walt Disney down. This is how Arthur Linkletter describes the story later on. He said, I thought to myself, my poor deluded friend, he's crazy, he's gonna put a bunch of merry-go-rounds and roller coasters out here 45 minutes from LA. He'll go broke. I was too smart for that. Well, it just so happened today that uh, Walt Disney has more than 200,000 employees which includes a net worth of about 97 billion U.S. dollars. And so because he thought his friend was crazy, Arthur Linkletter lost out on a tremendous opportunity for wealth. Now, from the perspective of history, it's almost inconceivable to all of us here today that someone would just shrug off such a great opportunity without even really seriously considering it for himself. But incredibly, People today do the very same thing in regards to the resurrection of Christ. People today treat the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with a similar attitude and lack of consideration. You see, in spite of the fact that we have the perspective of almost 2,000 years of Christian history, many people today shrug off the resurrection by simply ignoring it. They refuse to consider the legitimacy of it. In spite of the fact that they have a whole lot more to lose as human beings than just a mere opportunity for wealth. Like Arthur Linkletter, they feel as though they're too smart to believe in such nonsense. Instead, they'd much rather spend their time, energy, and effort in life focusing on earthly things like power, wealth, and authority with little or no regard for their eternal well-being. And tragically, this is sometimes the case even amongst those who call themselves Christians, right? You see, even in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Sadducees, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were actually divided over the doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees completely rejected the resurrection, while the Pharisees affirmed it. And even today, there are certain Protestant sects, right, who continue to deny a bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, while most mainline Protestant churches believe in the resurrection and actually teach it, the majority of liberal Protestant churches and other groups like Unitarians and Quakers actually deny it. But honestly, any church that doesn't believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ should not even be seriously considered to be a Christian church, even if they argued otherwise. And so historically, there really have only been two views of the Resurrection. There's the world's view of the Resurrection, right? And then there's the Christian view of the Resurrection. There's no middle ground. You either affirm it or you deny it. You either believe it or you don't. And so in our passage today, we'll consider the Resurrection from the perspective of Festus, right? Governor Festus, as he explains Paul's case to King Agrippa, and his sister Bernice. And hopefully in verses 18 and 19, we'll see that Festus' own thoughts about the resurrection, right, are a mirror image of how most people in life view the resurrection today. Festus's view about it is the same way that people feel about it in our, li- in our lifetime today. And then we'll briefly look at the Christian understanding of the re- resurrection from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. So first, the resurrection, uh, the world's view of the resurrection in verse 18. And then second, the Christian view of the resurrection in verse 19. Now, I want us to begin by paying very close attention to the words of Festus in verse 18 as he lays out Paul's case before King Agrippa. Uh, Look at the beginning of verse 18. There Festus says that the topic of the resurrection was not what he expected or supposed, Literally, uh, the Greek puts it like this, Uh, it was not what I was thinking of, right? You see, Festus, what he was saying was that as governor uh, of a Roman territory, out of all the things I have to deal with on 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 a daily basis, you guys are quarreling to me over something as simple and petty as religion. I mean, I thought this dispute was over something more important, like maybe Paul was planning to assassinate the emperor, or maybe he was planning a revolt against Rome. all this foolishness about a resurrection of someone from the dead, that was the absolute furthest thing from my mind. And notice at the beginning of verse 20, Festus even admits to being at a loss for words at how to investigate such matters, which means that even though he's heard about the resurrection and to a certain extent understood it, he still didn't think it was serious enough to warrant his consideration. Now you might be wondering, Why Festus refused to take the resurrection that Paul taught seriously. I mean, think about it. If there's any truth to the resurrection at all, wouldn't that call for Festus or anyone else to repent and get right with their maker, right? I mean, we've already seen several instances in the book of Acts where people have repented and turned to God on the basis of the Apostle Paul's testimony about the resurrection, For instance, in Acts 17, when Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica and he preached on the Sabbath, we're told that he taught them primarily about the resurrection. Verse 2 tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And verse 4 tells us that when Paul preached that and said that, some of the Jews who were there, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks, believed Paul, and even join him in Silas. Again, in the very same chapter, 17, uh, Paul preached about the resurrection to some philosophers at the Areopagus on, in Athens on Mars Hill. And verse 34 tells us that, "'Some of the people believed "'and became followers of Paul, including Dionysus, "'and a woman named Damaris "'and a number of other people as well.'" So you see, Paul's testimony to Festus concerning the resurrection was definitely sufficient sufficient enough to warrant a response of faith from him if he truly believed it. But the fact of the matter is that Festus utterly rejected the gospel that Paul so faithfully proclaimed to him. He simply dismissed it out of hand and shrugged it off as unimportant. You say, how do you know for sure that Paul taught the doctrine of the resurrection to Festus? How do you know that for sure? Well, first of all, we must remember that Jesus had already told Paul that uh, the reason that he's sending Paul to Rome was so that he could testify about him before governors and kings. And so Paul's testimony to Festus was also a part of God's sovereign purpose, and Paul knew it. That's why each and every opportunity he got, he took the time to preach the gospel wherever he went, right? It didn't matter who it was, Jew or Gentile, Slave or free man, Governor Festus or Governor Felix, Paul preached the gospel to everybody. And so through his interactions with Paul and the previous Governor Felix, Festus knew exactly why it was that Paul was in prison. He knew exactly why it was that Paul had this problem with the Jews. It was simply because Paul was preaching the resurrection that people were upset with him which is why Festus told King Agrippa and Bernice that Paul asserted that Jesus was still alive in verse 19. One commentator puts it like this. He says, while Luke did did not record Paul mentioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it is clear that Paul made the declaration before Festus. The word asserted in verse 19 is in the imperfect tense in the Greek. It simply means that Paul repeatedly testified to the validity of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, end quote. So as we can see, in spite of hearing the gospel faithfully proclaimed, Festus still rejected it. And he refused to make the slightest effort to hear more about it from the Apostle Paul or to even take it seriously. John Phillips wrote, poor Festus, he had in his custody the greatest ambassador, the most eloquent and gifted missionary ever to bless mankind, a man far greater than any Caesar of Rome or any philosopher of Greece, and yet Festus failed to see it. He was in touch with truths that are the most sublime in the world, and he did not know it. Thus, destiny and eternity came in naught, but Festus could not be bothered so much as to go to the door. End quote. You know, someone much smarter than I am said, when hesitation in life becomes procrastination, it often leads to devastation. You see, like many people today, Festus procrastinated and rejected the gospel from Paul. He was a rationalist who denied any belief in the supernatural. Someone who put his very own reason above God's revelation and looked on anything supernatural with utter contempt. And so the resurrection of Jesus was foolishness to fester. He simply, uh, simply because he couldn't grasp it with his own finite and limited understanding as a sinner. So he just dismissed it altogether and let the opportunity of a lifetime pass him by, the opportunity for his soul to be eternally saved. And as Christians, you meet people like that all the time today, right? People who disbelieve and dismiss the Bible simply because they put more confidence in their own understanding than they do in the very God who created them. They say, well, I've never seen anybody rise from the dead before, so therefore, it can't happen. It's impossible. I don't believe it. But the problem with that kind of reasoning is that it's utterly fallacious at best because it bases your entire belief system in life, about life and ultimate reality, completely on your own very limited experience as a human being. And that can be very foolish because it's, it's like saying to yourself, well, gee, I guess I never die, so I, I guess I never will. You see, it makes no sense. Because if there's a God, then he is certainly able to raise a person from the dead. And this is exactly what Jesus said to the Sadducees when they confronted him in their disbelief about the resurrection. He said to them, You are mistaken, since you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. See, what Jesus is saying is that those who truly understand the power of God know that he is most certainly capable of raising a person from the dead. Friends, I hope that there are none of us here today who are relying on our own understanding when it comes to accepting the supernatural teachings and doctrines of the Bible. I hope that we're not elevating our very own reason above God's revelation simply because we can't wrap our minds around it, a certain biblical doctrine or concept, because it seems too hard for us to grasp. You see, I'm not completely sure if we will ever fully understand or comprehend everything about God and all of his works in creation. Take, for example, the concept of the Trinity, right? Even though it's a very rational doctrine and it doesn't violate any laws of logic, right? Do we fully comprehend every aspect of it as people? Yet, as Christians, All of us should certainly believe it, right? We should all certainly believe it if we're going to be orthodox in our understanding about who God is in his nature and being. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that as Christians, you can't struggle to believe certain things that are taught in the Bible. But if that's the case, and you really are struggling with a particular doctrine or concept in Scripture, then God invites all of us to open up his word and to ask him for the faith to accept it, even if we aren't fully able to comprehend it in our own understanding. Because at least for now, in this life, we're all called, as Christians, to embrace certain things by faith. And so please, friends, let's take the resurrection seriously and not just shrug it off like those in the world. Secondly, The world stumbles at the resurrection because it's contrary to their pride. The world stumbles at the resurrection because it's contrary to their pride. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the single most greatest event that happened in human history, right? Because it has reference to the eternal destinies of every human being. And so everyone who hears it will not go away unaffected by it. And neither did Festus, right? There is no sense of neutrality when you hear the word of God. You either believe it or you don't. You either reject it or accept it. You see, Festus understood that if Jesus really did die and come back to life, then he would be forced to admit that his entire life and worldview, up until the time he met the Apostle Paul, was based entirely on a lie. And that would mean that he would ultimately have to swallow his pride and admit that This little old stuttering man, Paul, knew something that he himself didn't, that a man who was now a prisoner in his custody had a better understanding of God than he did and a better relationship with God than him. You see, Festus was a very proud and powerful governor. And so who was Paul to be preaching to someone like him, especially about something as important as eternity and judgment. And it was the same way, if you remember, with Jesus before Pilate. Jesus actually testified to Pilate about eternal things. But was Jesus, right? What was truth to Pilate? You see, often people stumble at the messenger long before they ever really get to the heart of the message. You see, there's a sense in which we all tend to judge a book by its cover. And so for Festus, this proud Roman official, there was absolutely no way that this weak little imprisoned Jew was worthy enough or capable enough of teaching him anything in his very own mind, especially something so important that could cause him to have to rethink his entire worldview about life and about eternity about life in Greco-Roman culture, including all the things that he learned from his family, and friends, and loved ones. Can you see how this type of thing would be difficult, not only for Festus, but for anyone else? How painful and difficult a thing it would be for all of us to do, to renounce our culture and the instruction that we have received from very early on in our lives. You guys feel it here already, right? When you're forced to examine or rethink certain aspects of your culture to bring them in line with the teaching of Scripture, right? Because it it doesn't fall in line with the teaching of the Bible. Things like dating outside of your race, trying to limit the extent of your parents' authority and control over your lives here in Indonesia. You see, it can be a very difficult thing for a person to do. I remember becoming a Christian at the age of 26. It was a complete paradigm shift for me in regards to my mentality, in regards to everything that I had once believed to be true about the world, about myself, about my family, about my friends and loved ones. You see, before I was a Christian, I absolutely loved the world and everything in the world. But after my conversion, I had to embrace the fact fact that the Bible said that the world was satanic and that the entire system was evil. Before I was a Christian, I loved myself first and foremost. But now I had to embrace what the Bible said about me, that I was inherently evil, that I was an inherently selfish person at best. I loved myself more than I loved my neighbor. I put myself first in all things. And the Bible also had to say the very same things about all of my family members and friends as well. You see, God's revelation had completely transformed my reason. And now I accepted the truth about myself, whether I liked it or not. So when I became a Christian, my entire worldview was completely shattered and uprooted. And I realized that for 26 years, my entire life up until that point had been completely based on a lie. And so accepting the resurrection by faith can be a very difficult and humbling thing for a person to do. Thirdly, the world stumbles at the resurrection because it implies that as human beings, all of us will one day be judged. The resurrection implies that as human beings, we all will one day be judged. You see, if the resurrection is true, then that means that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was, right? The son of God who came to earth in human flesh. And as a God-man, he promised that one day he would return to judge the living and the dead in order to reward or punish sinners according to their works. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the hour is coming. In which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is coming with his angels in the glory of his Father. A resurrected body. And then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. You see, Christ's resurrection is extremely threatening to all those who love sin, to all those who despise God's commandments, to everyone who desires to live their lives autonomously and independently from the authority and control of God. And so our natural inclination as sinners is to avoid judgment by putting the resurrection far from our thoughts as human beings so that we don't even have to think about it or entertain it as a viable option for the future so that we can be free to live how we want to live without any feelings of remorse or guilt for our actions earlier I mentioned that there's a debate, a debate between the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees over the resurrection in the Bible I also mentioned that the Sadducees rejected the resurrection while the Pharisees believed it well strangely enough the Pharisees' belief in the resurrection led them to also believe and teach that God would reward and punish sinners in the afterlife, right? And so there's a logical reason why the doctrine of the resurrection was so very threatening to the Sadducees. There's a reason that they didn't like it. Why? Because it entailed a doctrine of judgment, a doctrine of rewards and punishment in the afterlife. You see, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats in Israel. They were members of the privileged upper class who had far more political power and wealth than the Pharisees and so they had much more to lose. In fact archaeologists even say that some of the most lavish and beautiful houses in Jerusalem belonged to the Sadducees. You see life was good for them they were rich and powerful so they certainly didn't didn't want anything to upend their lifestyle because they loved money and at the time they were making plenty of it by cheating people who were coming to the temple in order to exchange from the money changers so then if the resurrection were true the Sadducees understood that they would be ultimately judged by God for their crimes against the nation and so they mocked the resurrection they shrugged it off as foolish and absurd you see much like the Sadducees Festus also loved his authority and power, the authority and power he possessed as an official in the Roman army. Right? A job that no doubt came with many perks, as well as various ways to make a lot of extra money. Illegally, of course. Through things like bribery and extortion. And unfortunately, his reaction to Paul's teaching about the resurrection ultimately proved that he was unwilling to part with the things he loved in life and he most certainly didn't want to think about facing God's judgment for all of his crimes on earth. What about you today, friends? Does the doctrine of the resurrection feel threatening to you today? Are you willing to part with the things you love for Jesus Christ, if necessary? Things like power, money, possessions, family, or the position of authority you have in society or at work. You see, as sinners, everything in our flesh longs for upward mobility in life. Everything in our flesh longs for self-promotion. We all desire to be appreciated, honored, and remembered. We all have this tendency in our lives to want to live in comfort and ease without any difficulties. And this is exactly why the teaching of the resurrection can be quite helpful for us as believers, because it reminds all of us that this earth is not ultimately our home. And it also reminds us of judgment, that someday we'll all be judged and rewarded on the basis of our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Reminding ourselves, friends, of this, this reality can help to check our sinful passions and reorient our hearts and minds towards the things of God, back where they should be. Right? Our lives are meant to glorify God in everything we do during our short time here on earth. Now that brings us to our our second and final point, real quickly, which is the Christian view of the resurrection, the Christian view of the resurrection. That is how we as Christians should use the doctrine of the resurrection when we share the gospel with other people. So we've already seen through the testimony of Festus that Paul faithfully proclaimed the resurrection to him when he talked to him about Jesus. Look at what Festus says about Paul at the end of verse 19. He said that Paul went around asserting that Jesus was alive. What a great thing for someone to testify about us as Christians, right? That we go around asserting that Jesus is alive. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. In other words, the doctrine of the resurrection, with its view towards rewards and punishment, is exactly what Paul talked to people about when he shared the gospel with them. And that included everything that the resurrection entailed, right? Things like the righteousness of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, as well as the second coming of Christ and the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. You say, how do you know for sure that Paul mentioned all these things when he witnessed to other people? Well, I've already mentioned to you guys that uh, Paul was in Acts on Mars Hill In Acts chapter 17, talking with the philosophers, right? With these pagan philosophers in Athens. And guess what it was he said to them? As he bore witness to a bunch of Gentiles who had never came across the Bible at one day in their lives, in Acts chapter 17, guess what it was he said to them? Look what he he said to them. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day, judgment, in which he will judge the world in Righteousness the second coming of Christ, right? By a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, the resurrection. Are you beginning to see that this is sort of a recurring theme in Paul's gospel presentation to sinners, right? That he talks about sin, righteousness, and judgment, as well as a future resurrection when he witnesses to people. Right, Yeah, Paul talks about salvation in Jesus, right? But he also wants people to know exactly why they need Jesus in the first place. So he tells them about their very own sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. He tells them about the righteousness of God through faith in Christ that can be theirs if they receive it. He tells them also about the judgment that they will face if they continue on in unrepentance. You see, unlike modern evangelists, Paul was not afraid to preach the whole counsel of God, to tell people about the judgment that was coming to all men, to faithfully proclaim that God would someday punish the wicked and reward the righteous. He was not afraid to warn sinners that if they failed to repent and receive Christ through faith, that there was a day coming that they would stand before him and be eternally condemned. Friends, it takes a whole lot of courage to witness to people like this. You see, very often when we share the gospel with people, we fail to proclaim it in its entirety because we do so without warning people of the danger of facing God's judgment. You see, we're real quick to talk about the, the, the love of God, right? And about all the blessings in heaven for those who believe. But very rarely do we tell others about how their sin has separated them from a holy God, about the righteousness that God offers through faith in Christ that they need because their righteousness are as filthy rags before him. And especially do we fail to tell them about the eternal judgment that they will face for rejecting the gospel. And yet Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, he tells all of us, That this is exactly why the Holy Spirit came to convict people of, right? The Holy Spirit came to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. John chapter 16, verse 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning what? Concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged and will be judged at the resurrection. You see, when we share the gospel with others, friends, the reason we can warn them about their sin, about the righteousness of God and the danger of facing God's judgment, is because the Holy Spirit himself is convicting sinners of the very same thing. When the Holy Spirit, Spirit brings the center to faith in Christ, he almost always works together in unison with our faithful testimony and proclamation of that gospel message to them. That is the full gospel, if we are telling it, and not some uh, renounced version of it, some abbreviated form of it. And therefore, friends, we can all take courage when we witness to people And warn them about their sin and the danger of facing God's judgment at the resurrection of Christ. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is both with us and near us when we share the gospel with others. And that should encourage us, friends, to be even more diligent and courageous when we do so. Because we know that those whom the Spirit gives ears to hear His word, they will definitely believe. Friends, I hope you've been encouraged by this message and you feel even more power, empowered to evangelize today, knowing that Jesus will never forsake those who are faithful to him. You see, when Paul preached the gospel to these hostile Jews all these governors and kings, remember that it was Jesus who came and appeared to him in prison and sat next to him and said, take courage, Paul, for you have faithfully testified to the facts that about me. Let's remain faithful, friends. Our testimony about Jesus, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us because he's promised all of us that he will be with us even till the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great salvation in Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for the doctrine of the resurrection. It is not only very helpful to us, Lord, individually, because it promises us a future in heaven, Lord, with you, where we will be reunited with our physical bodies. But it's also helpful for us, Lord, as we evangelize people today and proclaim that one day, if they do not repent, they will soon face God's judgment. Father, empower us as we witness to others and help them, Lord, to learn about you. May they not be like Festus, Lord, who... Reject it, this doctrine, but may they accept it with all of their hearts, Lord, and turn to Christ and be saved. We ask these things in his name. Amen.